Well, uh, happy anniversary, Harvest. Uh, I didn't know if you knew this, but this is uh, our fourth week now of Harvest Bible Chapel, and I know I kind of sound like a junior high girl celebrating her first relationship, and, and it's been four weeks and all that, but uh, it's, it's been four amazing weeks, hasn't it been? And uh, God has been doing some amazing things amongst us, and we, uh, it's been such a privilege to be here worshiping with you. We, we want to be amazed with Jesus, right? Amen? We want to be amazed with Jesus. And we know that the way that, that we, we see Him, the way that we think about Him, it determines everything else about our life. Like what comes into our minds when we think about Jesus, that's the most important thing about us. The way, the way we think about Jesus determines how you live. And, and we've been looking at Jesus for the past three weeks. We've been looking at Jesus um, all throughout Scripture and just getting little, little snippets, little scenes, just so that we could learn to adore our amazing Jesus all the more. We've seen Jesus, uh, Isaiah chapter 6. Remember that? Four weeks ago, Isaiah chapter 6, we saw gigantic Jesus. Like, bigger than everything else, higher than everything else, nothing like Him, nothing so pure, so terrifying as a view of the pre-incarnate Jesus. We saw that in uh, Isaiah 6. We saw Jesus, um, this high God, impoverish Himself. In John chapter 1, the Word became flesh. Jesus became touchable, embraceable. This Jesus, He's the Jesus who sits us down, He holds our hand, and He explains to us the greatness of God that we saw Jesus in John chapter 1. And last week was a little intense. I I apologize. Sometimes the text just demands it. We saw Jesus, blood spattered, knees dirty, hands trembling, but eyes brimming with love for His people, right? In the Garden of Gethsemane. And, and it's this morning that we're, we get to see victorious Jesus. This is like Jesus, like battles over, everyone's been conquered, no more challengers, the whole world surrendered to His greatness. The whole world just understanding and bowing the knee to Jesus and admitting who He is. Like in our scene tonight, in, uh, in, in this morning, in Philippians chapter 2 is our text, we're going to see Jesus. He's like being paraded around the world as a victorious general. He's like being celebrated in all corners of the earth and He is being submitted to by all who has ever lived. And, and my goal this morning is that each and every one of us would walk out of here more excited about Jesus' exaltation than any other future event. Any other thing that we've got on our calendar, any other thing that we're planning on, that we're hoping for, that we're looking forward to, I want you to desire Jesus and to see Him exalted above and before all creation. I want you to be more excited about that event than anything else you've got on your calendar. And, and there's a lot of things that are going to happen in the future, right? I don't know what your plans are this week. Maybe there's a special anniversary coming up. Maybe it's a, a day to celebrate in the future, the, the birth of your grandchildren. Uh, you know, those are all good things, but they're not the greatest events. 
Actually, there's a lot of future events uh, coming up in, in Scripture, right, that we know of because of uh, what Scripture says. Scripture talks about a lot of things that are coming. The rapture, right, the, the, the second coming of Christ, His return, His thousand-year reign. Uh, so there's a lot of bad things, trials, tribulations, judgments being poured out. This guy named Antichrist, right, is a bad dude. And... Um, and this, the, there's a lot of things that are coming up in the future that we know from Scripture, but nothing compares to what we see in Philippians chapter 2. And this is the, the whole point of existence. All those other things, the rapture and tribulation and thousand-year reign, all those confusing timing things, those are, all like, those are all just setting the stage for what we see in Philippians chapter 2, verses 9, 10, and 11. Why don't you take a look at the text and let me read it, and you follow along as I read. Verse 9, Paul says, Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth and every tongue confess that Jesus is Lord to the glory of God the Father. This is the scene that I'm most looking for. This is that future day and future event that I'm most longing for. And this morning, I just want to explain to you why I'm so looking forward to seeing Christ as He's portrayed here in Philippians chapter 2. Look at the text. Look at, look at verse 9. It says, Therefore God has highly exalted Him. That's special. That's important. That word highly there in the Greek, it's the word uh, uper. It's what we get the word uh, hyper from or super. Uh, it's like, it, the idea here is God has specially exalted him. God has especially uh, raised him up before all people. And the main idea here is, is Jesus has been waiting for his due. And here he gets it from the Father. The Father God is pretty impressed with Jesus Christ. The Father God is pretty impressed with Jesus. And that should mean something to us, right? Because, uh, you know, God, God the Father, he's pretty smart. He's a smart guy. I'm like, like when we talk about all the, the, the things that God knows, we describe it as, uh, right, he knows what? All things, right? God the Father knows all things. And so in this text, for the Father to exalt the Son, is, it's, impressious. It, it's impressive. He's impressed with Jesus. I mean, God knows everything. God knows everything about this creation. He knows everything that's going to happen in this earth. He knows you know, about that uh, pretty amazing universe and that scientific discovery that we won't make for another thousand years of that, you know, whatever, gaseous nebula out there 20,000 million light years away. He knows the most in- impressive things that humans can do. He knows who's going to win the next big game. He knows who's going to be celebrated by us. He knows uh, the extent of all that we can do in, in athletics or in life in, in general. He's the one who created everything. And so that little thing that you were watching on that nature show, that animal that has that really impressive ability to, I don't know, hide or run away or eat or you know whatever it may be to camouflage itself. God created all those things. He's, he's, he knows it. He, he's seen it all. There's nothing more impressive in the world to God the Father than Jesus Christ. After searching the entire universe, God's like, eh, good, eh, it's not bad. But like, Jesus, now that's awesome. That's what God the Father thinks. 
That should be impressive to us. The, word, uh, the first word in our text is the word therefore. And so for those of you, I mean a lot of you know, when you see a therefore, what are you supposed to ask? You're supposed to ask, what is the therefore? Therefore. Wow, you guys are like born in Sunday school. You guys are awesome. No, you're supposed to ask, what is the therefore? Therefore. And so look above. Look at the text. Paul's been developing an argument. In verse 5, Paul says to the church in Philippi, have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus. Have the mind of Christ amongst you as a church. Verse 6, who, Christ, who, though he was in the form of God, did not account equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. See, I don't know if you noticed it, I don't know if you recognized it, but we've been preaching through this text for the past four weeks. It's right there. Jesus, in the form of God, Isaiah chapter 6, did not account equality with God a thing to be grasped, emptied himself, John chapter 1, humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross, Garden of Gethsemane, the Gospel of Mark. We've been preaching through this text and Paul was bringing these ideas to the church at Philippi Philippi, because he wants them to be revolutionized at the thought of Jesus. Same way I want you to be revolutionized by who he is. And Paul wants them to learn the lesson of humility by Jesus' life and death on the cross. That's the, the shouting message of this passage is that you, as a church, need to learn humility. You need to learn to prefer others. You need to learn to care for other people because from the example of Christ. And the message is humility. So when we get to our text, verse 9, and Paul says, therefore, the therefore is there to point us back to this whole humility thing. God, was, Jesus Christ was more humble than anyone who has ever come to the planet. One who is so high has never come so low and suffered such a, a grotesque death on the cross, such a humbling death on the cross. There is none who has traveled, tra- has gone so far in humility, who has had such great Love for people, others, and preferring others. The message of Philippians chapter 2 is for us to be humble. And the idea that Paul is developing in verse 9 is that God is highly exalted Jesus because He was humble. And so if you're going to learn anything this morning, if you're taking notes, I want you to learn this timeless truth. Write this down, okay? Write this down. Humility leads to exaltation. Humility leads to exaltation. We know this is true. This is a a natural law. This is a a spiritual reality that you need to just grasp this morning. You need to get used to this idea. Matthew chapter 23 verse 12. Whoever exalts himself will be what? Humbled. Whoever humbles himself will be exalted. James chapter 4 verse 10. Humble yourselves before the Lord and He will exalt you. First Peter chapter 5. Peter tells us to humble ourselves therefore under the mighty hand of God so that at the proper time He would exalt you. Matthew 5. Blessed are the poor in spirit for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. All these passages throughout the New Testament teach us this simple, real truth that you're not living according to. That you're not depending on. 
The natural law and the spiritual reality is that humility every time leads to exaltation. You can take it to the bank. You can lean on it. You can live it. You can believe it. Just as surely as, you know, if I, if I let go of, of this Bible right now, it would every time fall to the ground. Like you can bet on it. It's a sure thing. You know it's coming. Well, humility always leads to exaltation. And yet, it's kind of hard to believe this, isn't it? I mean, when we're faced with the option to promote ourselves, to defend ourselves, to boast about all the things that we've done, it's kind of hard to believe, ah, now, those who are humble will be exalted. Our world seems anything else but. Our world opposes this idea, and it seems like in our world today that it's the exact opposite that's true. It's those who fight for themselves. It's those who promote themselves. It's those who have a high self-esteem who get, get it really going in life. It's those people who are exalted. Except, uh, except for Jesus. You know, He's the one exception to that rule. He was the most humble. He who was in the highest place stooped so low. And we've seen Him rewarded, right? He was resurrected on the third day. It was Christ the most humble who God drew. He literally picked him up and drew him to himself and sat him at the right hand of God. See, Jesus is your proof. Jesus is the proof that humility leads to exaltation. Jesus let God exalt him. He didn't fight for it. He didn't struggle for it. He didn't strive to show everybody how, uh, how, how he should get all the honor and the glory. He just served and loved and cared for. And this is the rule by which you should live your life. Humility leads to exaltation. It takes faith. It's a step of faith. As you go out there and you live a humble life, you're sitting in the back of your mind knowing Jesus received his dues. I will be rewarded for this humility and God will exalt me. God was faithful to exalt Jesus because of his humility. He's the standard. He's the proof. God sees every small, humble, private act of humility that you've ever done in your entire life. That one time where you helped that little kid, gave him something to drink, God saw it. He'll reward it. And the full significance of your private humility will be rewarded in the end, before Him. So humility leads to our, our exaltation. or the Humility, ultimately for Jesus, led to His exaltation. Look on in the text, verse 9, Therefore God has highly exalted Him and bestowed on Him the name that is above every name. Now right here I need to pause. It's a little difficult in the English to get what Paul is saying here. Paul is basically saying that Jesus has a name that is above every name. It's not the name Jesus that is the name that he has which is above every name. It's a name coming later. You see it there in the end of verse 11. Every tongue confesses that Jesus Christ is what? Lord. Lord. Lord is the name that is above every name. Lord. Ruler. Master. King. God. See, in the end, 
God the Father vindicates His Son who was doubted, who was spat upon, who was trampled on the ground by by men. He vindicates the great honor of His Son by exalting Him above all creation and saying, look, look who He is. You didn't believe it. You didn't trust Him. You didn't follow Him. But here He is. He is God. And everyone will be changed. All they saw was a man. A mere man, just like us, and they threw rocks at him. They spat upon a mere man. They killed him thinking he was just a man. And what they failed to recognize and realize was the great gravity of the truth that he, in his humility, just took flesh on. And that behind the flesh was the great and glorious God of Israel. The great and glorious God who had preserved the people, who had called them into existence, who had created the, the whole world, and they failed to grasp the significance of the deity of Christ. And that's why Paul is bringing us to this passage. Because if God can come down, as we've seen, if God can come down and humble Himself, then how much more should we, who have very, we don't have that far to go to be humble, Right? I mean, it's just, we don't have to go that far down. We just have to recognize the truth about what we really are. God, like, literally abandoned functions of who He is to come down into this earth. I don't know if abandoned the right way is is the right word to say that. I might have just committed a blasphemy, but I don't know. Um, But uh, He literally, He emptied Himself, that's a better way to put it, of who He was and came down. We just have to, like, realize that we're not much. And so here, on this special day, now imagine this, someday after the rapture, someday after the tribulation, someday after the thousand-year reign of Christ, and if you have no idea what I'm talking about, I'm glad you're here. Um, Someday after all those things, we'll clarify those things at some later date. Sometime after the final battle, after the white throne judgment, everyone will be settling into their eternal environment for like the first hour, and before eternity starts, we're all going to pause, everyone, Everyone who's ever been created, we're all going to pause and we're going to turn and we're going to bow. That's an awesome day. I just imagine, I close my eyes and I imagine this awesome day. Over there are my, my friends, my family who led me to Christ. Over here is Luther, Spurgeon, Chuck Smith. Peter, John. Behind me are all those who I've had the gracious opportunity to to lead to the Lord. And yet there's more people in this text than what we normally think about. Every knee is the text. uh, Above earth, on earth, and below the earth. There, there, there's, you, know, you know, we often think about all the Christians who are going to be there and this is this great scene, great scene in heaven. But it's actually a lot more than that. Look at the text again. It's, it's those who are above earth, below earth, and on the earth. All of creation. Everything basically that Paul is, Paul is trying to tell us, everything that has a knee, has ever had a knee joint, is going to bow it. Like, that's the whole point of this text. So there's, I've got for you, I've got a list, a small list. You might want to jot these down. This is really important to think about. Four more beings that will bow the knee to Christ than what we normally think about. Four more beings that will bow the knee to Christ. And going over this this morning, it was amazing to me. Satan's in this list. 
Satan and all of his demons. They are going to bow the knee to my Lord and Savior, finally. Like after however long of rebellion, after thousands of years of tempting people, of messing with us, of influencing our lives, of of bringing in sin and, and introducing death, and all of that, all going to be defeated, all going to be done, and Satan and all of his demons are going to have to bow the knee. They've got no more weapons, no more tricks up their sleeve. They're disarmed, defeated, broken, and they're bent. Satan and his demons are are beings that will be bowing the knee in this scene. More people that we we don't normally think about. Condemned sinners. This is a tough thought. Condemned sinners under the earth. Condemned sinners will bow their knee as they begin their lifetime, eternity of eternal torment. That's a significant statement. The God who they missed, the God who they rebelled against, the God who they didn't care about. I mean, they they who have known the truth, have had the law written on their hearts, lived for themselves anyway. And those who heard the gospel and denied it, heard all those amazing things about Jesus Christ and didn't care. These people will bow the knee and as they enter into hell, they will say, I deserve this. Like, we normally get this picture of hell, you know, we, we see it in the text, obviously it's awful, obviously it's a place of suffering, and we just get this idea of, of you know, these guys in hell, they're going to be suffering, they're going to be mad, and they're still going to be rebelling. But it, it's almost not the scene. I, they, they know that they deserve it. After their lifetime of rebellion, they see Christ and they're like, yeah, I missed, I missed the boat. I should have been serving Him. I should have been worshiping Him. I should have lived my life for Him. And though I called Him a blasphemer, though I called Him a liar, though I spit on Him, I deserve this. Another group that we missed. So Satan, his demons, condemned sinners. We know redeemed sinners will be there. Even the ones we disagree with will be there as well, all bowing the knee to Jesus. But fourthly, angels. Angels here bowing the knee to Christ. And I think this is significant as well. I mean, this is no mundane day in the life of the angel. The, you know, the angels who have been submitting and living forever for the glory of God. The seraphim who we saw in Isaiah 6 in his presence, worshiping God every day since the day of their creation. Even these guys, they're pretty shocked at what's happening here. And we never see a scene like this. Angels bowing the knee. I mean, there's a universal character of this submission is shocking. And the angels are like, wow, they know. Look what it took to get us here. The angels are amazed and they're excited. Finally, the God who created them is getting the worship that he deserves. They've been wondering all along, like, what is God doing? Like, what on earth? What's God doing with this guy named Abraham? What's God doing with this people called Israel? What's God doing with this this baby? Why is he going down as a baby? What on earth was the crucifixion about? What's this church thing? And then they get it. Here in Philippians 2, they get it. How much it costs to get us to the point where Jesus gets exalted higher, hooper, like above, super exalted, above all creation. 
It's, a, it's an amazing scene. And it's at this moment, I, I desire this, I love this, I live for this moment, because here, my Lord, my Savior, finally gets what He's deserved all along. The submission and acknowledgement that He is greater than everything that has ever existed and all of creation. Like, make no mistake here, there is a one spotlight in this text and this time on this day. It's one spotlight and it's on Jesus. Like, everyone else is cleared off the stage. It's not about anyone but Jesus. Like, He's the only one. He is at the very center in front of all creation and only He is getting what only He deserves. It's this day I've been praying for. It's this day that is the foremost of of my desires. To see the King of Kings and Lord of Lords exalted as He deserves. There's a um, second timeless truth. A spiritual reality that I want you to learn today. Most important, I think, for all of us this morning. Is that it's all about Him. Yeah, humility gets rewarded in the end. But because of God's humility and because of Christ's great, uncomparable humility, it's all about Him. Everything. Everything. It's all about Him. It makes us stop and think and ask ourselves the question, am I, make, am I living life to make a name for myself on this earth or to lead others to see how great He is in every way I possibly can? I mean, on this day, when I'm sitting here, I'm imagining myself what I'm going to be doing on this day, and it's not hard. You know, I'm not going to be sitting there thinking about all my accomplishments that I did on this earth, all the great things that I've done, or how great I am. I'm not going to be thinking about other people that I admire and what they've done. I'm not going to be thinking about my plans for the future. I'm just going to be sitting there in amazement with Christ because nothing else compares. The whole universe is about Jesus, not you. That's what it's all about. Christ lifted up, His glory displayed. And so my question is, why aren't you on your knees in the way you live your life, giving glory, honor, dominion, majesty to the One whom God has chosen to take the name of Lord? That's a question I had to ask myself when I'm looking at this text. Jesus earned the right to be exalted and noticed like no one else, so it should be very natural for you to be talking about Him regularly. I mean, who else, what else is there really to talk about? Who else are you going to talk about? I mean, no one is worth talking about like Jesus is. Like, evangelism should be a very natural thing. I know we talk about how, you know, you want to be natural and and don't do weird things in your evangelism and don't interrupt and don't do, you know, straight. But, like, it should be so natural for us to talk about the God who we get to see exalted. That's the whole point. And it wasn't until, I think it was, I was in high school. I read this book by, um, by Jonathan Edwards. It was titled, The End for Which God Created the World. Life-changing. Like, there are so many scripture quotes in this book. It's almost, it's, like, it's just like a reference book. And Ed- Edwards goes in this book and he goes through all the texts that talk about, why did God create the world? For His glory. Why did God call Abraham? For his glory. And over and over and over again, everything that God has ever done is referenced in the Scripture, not predominantly for us, 
He didn't save us or forgive us or send His Son because we're so great to save us ultimately. Ultimately, the means and the ends of everything that He's ever done is to bring glory to His great name. We don't think about this. We don't get it. Now, I've gone around and I've taught at you know, a lot of camps, a lot of schools, and I often will ask the question at those camps. I'll be like, I'll ask, and I just did this um, the other month. I, I look at students, I look at young people who have been raised in the church, they've been at Sunday school, they've been taught, they've heard sermons, they've read the Bible, and I ask them, what is God committed to? Now, think about it yourself. What is God committed to? Now you know the answer, but think about what you would have said earlier. And what is God committed to? They always come up with great answers. God's committed to saving us. God's committed to protecting us. God's committed to this, that. God's committed to us, 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 us. And I've never, ever, never, not once, have I ever had one student who identified God's ultimate purpose in all things. His own glory. Because the church has just turned this around and and American Christianity, it's so self-centered and we're so self-centered, that's just our natural disposition. But texts like this shock us out of that. That's selfishness. Life's not about us. Life's not about things. Life's not about any of these things. That's the whole point. You know, I've got um, three-year-old twins. They're great kids and part of... uh, the fun of raising kids is teaching them, you know, what things are for. So, how, how, you know, all you parents, you guys know um, what a, uh, a, a nasal syringe is, right? I mean, with babies, let's just say babies, with things, snot is an issue, okay? It's just boogers are an issue, and I'm not going to go into that, but you just need something. It's just like the most technical term I could use to describe this thing. It's like a, it's a, a, it's a sucky thingy for boogers, okay? That's, that's what it is. For those of you who don't have kids, it's coming, all right? Um, and, and so, you know, you've got this little thing, and, uh, and so my son Titus, you know, we're using it with our, our, our infant Micah, and my son Titus comes up to me and he's like, hey, daddy, look what I did. Right? And anytime you're a parent, you know that when you hear your son saying, hey, look what I did, you're like, you've you got to get ready. You don't look yet. Just prepare. You're either going to be mildly amu- amused or thoroughly horrified when you look. And so Titus has the nasal thing and he's got it in his mouth. He's like, hey, look. And... Uh, Um, awkward. <laughs> and so what am I supposed to do, right, as a dad? What am I I'm, I'm supposed to, well, after I stop laughing and uh, say, Honey, look at this. Um, what do I say to him? Son, that's not what that's for, right? Uh, you're doing it wrong. You don't get it. That's, that's not what that's used for. I, I, hope, uh, I hope God is using this morning as... Um, That's me. I apologize. I hope God is using this morning to speak to all of us and to say, you know what, son, it's not what that's for. This life I gave you, this food I gave you, this home I gave you, it's not what that's for. You're using it for yourself, but that's not why I gave it to you. You're doing it wrong. It's not about entertainment. It's not about comfort. It's not about fun. I mean, I, I seriously, I take this text, I look at it, and I think that that's going to be a great day when we all bow the knee to Christ. But how much of today am I living trying to make God bow the knee to me? 
Hey, no one would say that. So many Christians are living a life trying to make God bow the knee to them. God's our servant. God's doing what we want Him to. And none of us would ever say it like that. None of us would ever say, I'm really trying to get God to get on my agenda. Right? None of us would say it like that. But we do say, um, we say, God wants to make me happy. Right? Find that in the Scriptures. We don't say, God needs to serve me. We say, God needs to make me safe. It's not a priority. Your safety your physical safety, not a priority in the Scriptures. God is our safety. But I love how Paul does it. He, he prays when he's traveling. He doesn't pray for traveling mercies. He doesn't pray, you know, forestall the rapture so that there's still pilot in the seat in the front while I'm going across the country. I'm traveling today. It's a little dear to my heart. Sorry. He's, um, he's not thinking about his safety. He's not thinking about his comfort. That's not God's prerogatives. He's, he's asking for boldness. Why? Because he knows how awesome Jesus is. And he's getting on God's agenda. He's getting on God's plan. It's not about happiness. It's not about safety. It's not about peace. These things are just things we use to, to justify our pursuit of selfish living. Instead, it's all about making much of Jesus. Amen? So how are you making much of Jesus in your home? How are you making much of Jesus in front of your children, at your workplace, with your neighbors? And this is the best way to prove that Jesus reigns today. The hard thing about this text is that I want it to come because I I can't wait for that day where it's obvious to everyone. But the truth is, is that God is still reigning even today. It's just a little hard to see. But the best way that the world can come to see that Jesus reigns even today is to see Him reigning in your life. That's the throne upon which He's seated now. That's the easiest way to show Christ in His greatness now is through the life of those in the church and their love for Him, their humility, their absolute determination to not live for themselves but to live for something greater. My desire is to magnify Christ in my life, in my death, in my marriage, in my family, in my work in my free time. I surrendered the whole thing to the great work of exalting Christ. So this morning, I believe God has brought you here because there are some of you here this morning who just, you really need a shake-up in your priorities. I mean, you just need to sit down, pen, paper, write out what are the things I'm living for, I'm investing in, and you just need to take a long, hard evaluation and look at what you're living your life for. What you're doing with your time. See, there's, a, there's three things that we need to do in response to this text, in response to the greatness of Christ. Some of us need to cut out useless activities and pursuits in our life. Like, throw it in the trash, burn it, I'm done, I'm never going back to wasting my life for myself in that way. Cut it off. Get rid of it. Some of you need to get with the program and invest in the things that make Christ look great. It's not about you. There's so many opportunities. 
For instance, I know of this church that's being planted in Ventura. And they could really use a lot more help because their core group is getting a little tired. But get on in the program and get invest in the things that so obviously and easily make Christ look good. That's what you really need. That show Him off. So some of you need to cut out activities and pursuits of your life and never go back to them. Some of you need to like make room for the things that really matter and plug in and invest in a good gospel-preaching, Christ-exalting church. But most of you have to do the third, third thing, which is the hardest. You need to do the things you've been doing, but for totally new reasons. Do the things you need to do that you have been doing for years, but with a new motivation. And see, the amazing thing about this Christian life that God has given to us is, is that we can do everything that we need to do for the glory of God. And if we can't glorify God in it, we don't really need to do it. I mean, even in things like Paul says that our eating and our drinking, we can exist, we can do these things for the, the glory of God. And it's not just about saying some rote prayer before we eat or we drink. It's about acknowledging that God is the giver of all good gifts and He has sovereignly brought this plate, this meal, and the money in which to purchase it in front of me that I would partake in thankfulness, share what sacrificially, and use the energy I get from it for the glory of His name and the exaltation of Jesus Christ. That's what eating and drinking looks like as a Christian. Everything that we do can be done for the glory of Christ. And if you can't glorify Christ in it, you don't need to do it. Just cut it off. Be done with it. Because there's something going on in the universe that is bigger than you and you need to realize it. God is glorifying His Son. He's showing the greatness of His name and you can be a part of that. It's an amazing thing. A life lived for Christ. A life lived for anything else is a life wasted. I didn't come to grips with this until, and I'm still coming to grips with it. But I remember one day I was I was reading um, Romans one, and I was in the passage that everybody skips. <laughs> you know those, right? And this isn't huge. But it struck me at the moment, Romans 1, verse 1, Paul, a servant of Christ Jesus, of all the things Paul could have said about himself, the first thing, the way to introduce yourself to people he hasn't even met, what he wanted to get across more than anything else to a people that he dearly wanted to love, is that he was nothing but a servant of the Lord Jesus Christ. You know that word servant? That's an awful translation. You know what it really means? I hear you whispering it. Say it. It means slave. Not like I'm paid part-time to do this thing. Like my whole life is utterly abandoned to the will of one who is master over me. Paul servant of Christ Jesus. I would have so much more to say about myself before I got to the fact that I'm a slave. I'm a slave to His glory. I'm a slave to His righteousness. I'm a slave to His great name. And all I want to do is exist for the one who saved me and showed me His greatness. 
This is the um, last sermon in our small series, Our Amazing Jesus. This is the last sermon in the first series of our church. And it's these things that I wanted to preach on even before we got to preaching chapter by chapter and verse by verse, which is so important. Because more than anything else, I want this world to be amazed with Jesus Christ. And if we're going to have a church worth calling a church or a chapel, sorry, Harvest Bible Chapel, if we're going to have a church worthy of tacking the name of Jesus on it, it better be full of slaves. Better be full of slaves who are living for something else, who are living for something special, who aren't just going about living lives happy, safe, and peaceful, trying to get by and coping with life. I want to see a church, another church in Ventura, full of slaves who are abandoned to the glory of His great name. Otherwise, let's just leave this here. Let's just all have fond memories of that thing called harvest and be done. But if you're going to be here, get on this agenda because this is all we want. This is all we care about. This is why we're here. It's not primarily to reach this people group or this unreached people group or this ethnicity or this age group. It's not primarily here to, to have another church and this to do these programs and have this methodology or have the, all these things. All these things that we're doing, we're doing because our Jesus is so great. How about you? Can you attach every item on your agenda for this next week and explain to God why it furthered His glory? If you can't, make a new schedule. Cut it out. Because there's no one quite like our Son. There's no one quite like the Son. My Son's just mediocre. There's no one quite like the Son. There's a story of um, two young teenage boys these uh, young teenagers lived in a time when uh, the glory of God wasn't talked about often and Jesus wasn't that impressive to the people. But they heard the message of Christ's greatness. And they were burdened with the responsibility to make Christ and His greatness known. They were also living in the time of, of awful slavery. Not like New Testament slavery, like awful chains, shackles, beat, scars, burn, kill them, they're my property, toss them aside, that kind of slavery in the, uh, in the Atlantic, the Caribbean. These two young Moravians, it was the movement, of uh, the Christian movement. These men, so burdened by the glory of God to speak of His great name, they heard of an island in the Caribbean where there were thousands of slaves and not one Christian amongst them. They heard of a, an island where these slaves would live and die and never know the great name of Jesus Christ because all the island was was a plantation and there was only the slaves and the owner and the owner's servants and, and paid workers who beat the slaves and no one else would set foot on the island at all. So burdened by the greatness of Jesus and so desiring to make Him known, they... Uh, they sold themselves to the plantation owner. Used the money that they got by selling themselves to purchase 
passage to the island to live their life forever, the rest of their life, in servitude to someone else, not the master of the islands, but the Lord of the universe, preaching to slaves. Their humility will be rewarded. The fact that they would live their life for someone greater will be rewarded. And so will yours. Can I pray for you this this morning? Father, we see you. A king, an amazing one. We see you on your throne. We've seen you take on flesh. We've seen you sacrifice yourself for our sins. We've seen you be victorious over death. We've watched you utterly destroy sin, our sin. And now, Lord, we can sing to a victorious Savior, a reigning Lord, because the battle's been won. We can bow down to the greatness of God who has revealed Himself to us. We serve a risen Savior. We raise our hands and we sing to a a great, victorious God. And we ask that You change this world by changing us, making us servants to Your glory. Lord, let the light of the the significance of who you are change every area of our lives. And let your kingdom come. Let you be glorified and honored and praised. For there is none like you. Amen.